Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry. And this podcast is an extension of the SCV Underground, whose mission is to catalyze gospel movements in Santa Clarita, Los Angeles, and beyond. We discuss all things gospel movements, what they are, methods for bringing them about, and hearing stories from practitioners in the field. And today we have the opportunity to interview Steve Addison. Steve is a catalyst for movements that multiply disciples and churches everywhere. He is a missions leader author, speaker, podcaster, and mentor to pioneers. He is the author of five books on movements, Your Part in God's Story, The Rise and Fall of Movements, Pioneering Movements, What Jesus Started, and Movements That Changed the World. Steve and his wife, Michelle, live in Melbourne, Australia. They have four children, three grandchildren, a dog named Jasper, and he is most passionate about watching Australia beat the palms at cricket and the Kiwis at Rugby. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I uh, I shared with you earlier about your book, Movements That Changed the World, and I think I want to change the title to The Book That Changed Dan's Life. <laughs> oh, that's so good to <laughs> yeah. hear. It's, it's so wonderful. I, I just am so excited to have you share, especially on your new book that's come out on the Book of Acts. And, uh, you know, I started reading that I'm about through chapter four and it's just, it's wonderful. And as, as a academic myself, how refreshing it is to have a book that, uh, bridges that gap between, you know, theory and practice. So really excited to, to get going on uh, that journey with you. So yeah. don't want to take too much time. So, uh, let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like where are you from, where you were born and raised? how Jesus did or did not enter into <laughs> that picture growing up. So just share with us a little bit about who you are. Well, I, my parents were missionaries in the 50s in Papua New Guinea. But for health reasons, they had to return home. So I was born in Sydney and early years there. And, and then most of my life I've in Australia, I've, I've lived in Melbourne. We moved down to Melbourne. But I was far from God as a teenager. When, you, when your dad's a, well, he became a, a pastor. When your dad's a pastor, you, you want to impress people when they find out you're a minister's kid that they can't believe it because of how you behave. That was my goal. And, um, but, you know, there was just, a, a, you know, I was lost uh, and, I, and I knew it. It's a long story, but, but God sort of wonderfully brought me together with the gospel. You know, my motive was chasing a girl at a youth camp and she heard I was coming, and so she never turned up. I don't know. And and I came to know Christ uh, when I was seventeen, but then hit some some rocky road for the next three or four years. I was sort of in and out of the faith, and you know, finally I met someone whose life had been radically changed on the hippie trail in India, a ministry called Diller M House that Floyd and Sally McClung set up, and. This guy had come back to Australia, and I saw the change in his life, and that's what I wanted. So I, you know, six months later, I'm I'm there in Amsterdam, a part of a discipleship community there, 
reaching out in the city of Amsterdam, this Aussie boy, you know, overseas for the first time and, and learning discipleship, learning to share the gospel, learning how to make disciples, the sort of messy side of ministry. And yeah, so that's, that's my background. I met my wife there on the Ark in Amsterdam, Michelle, she's Australian, but we had to go to Amsterdam to meet. And we've been married now for about 42 years, four, four kids and three grandchildren. Hope there are more on the way, you know. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, live here in, in Melbourne. We've lived overseas at different times, but now here in Melbourne. The call to movements came really through, we, we got a call, first of all, to plant church. The church I grew up in, I got involved after we came back from Amsterdam and was serving as a volunteer, raising my support, that sort of thing amongst young adults. And the church wanted to plant and, and you know, I was, I was chosen, Michelle and I were chosen. We went out to the outer suburbs and, and planted a church and it went very well. We had a lot of support from the ascending church. We had a lot of momentum. Australian stands, it, it grew, you know, to uh, well over a couple hundred people in the first year. And so it went very, it was a lot of fun. But at the same time, there was also in me as a church planter, you know, this drivenness, you know, you're constantly counting the numbers. Are we going to have more than last week? <laughs> and for a year and a half, we did. We just kept growing, adding new families. And, um, but then, the Lord decided to get a hold of me and a hold of his church, and he allowed us to walk into a big church fight in the second year. And it really shook me up, and I began to see through my ministry, my motivations, and say, well, Lord, what, you know, what do you want? What is it? He had my attention, let's say. And... Um, that's after about three months of desperately seeking God and seeking for there to be resolution in the life of the church. God spoke into my life and said, Steve, it's not just one new church I'm after. I'm, I'm looking for a whole new generation of churches across, across the land and beyond. And that's when I didn't have sort of the language to describe it, but that's when the movement penny dropped in my mind. It wasn't just about my church and my ministry and church growth. It was about a movement of God. And I've been following that call ever since. Um, that was about, well, a long time ago, let's say 30, more than 30 years ago, that call came. So where did you go from there? Did you just give up the church? Did you, you know, move somewhere else did, or did you transition it? Yeah, I, I wanted to run or fight, and the Lord said, stand. And that's what I did, and, and we worked it through. Um, a few people left the life of the church, but most that was just a few people. And then God brought a, a renewal. Uh, there was a, a woman in the life of the church who had a prayer and discipleship ministry, her and her husband, and and lives, people started coming to know Christ. We'd seen a lot of restoration growth, people coming back to the faith or back to church life through the plant. Now we're beginning to see some conversion growth and, and lives radically, people far out, far from God coming to know the Lord, really. And I was smart enough just to bless and celebrate what God was doing. 
Um, but then, um, you know, the following year a call came. You know, I thought maybe we're meant to fuel movements through this church plant, but it was pretty clear, no, that, that's the call on Michelle and my life. And so we stepped out again the following year uh, to pioneer from scratch, this time without a startup team, um, just a small team, you know, involved in evangelism, discipleship. And it, it was so clear, the call to do that. It, it was so comp- it was, it was compelling call. And I thought, wow, we're just going to be so successful, <laughs> you know. You know, if in the first year we have two hundred people, well, we'll do this, and there'll be there'll be have churches all over Australia, you know. That, that's when I learned one of my principles of of guidance: that the clearer God speaks, the worse it's going to be. <laughs> because <laughs> why would He have to be so clear? <laughs> And, okay. and um, there's a book title. There's a book yeah, title there. That's a, that's, a, that's a bestseller right there. <laughs> and it was tough, you know, because um, I'm working as a builder's laborer. You know, I'm to try and make ends meet. We've rented out our house in the suburbs to move to the inner city, to be amongst sort of young adults and students in the inner city. And rents are astronomical, and we need a financial miracle or two a week, I think. <laughs> and after a while, that way, I mean, the, and the Lord provided, you know, in that whole two and a half years, we, we never missed. No, we were late on one payment on our house mortgage, you know, by a few days. But the strain of it, needing that couple of miracles a day, it really wore me down. And then we weren't seeing the same fruit and growth I was learning to be out there meeting people, sharing the gospel. I had a good partner with me, a guy called uh, Andrew Herbert, and we'd go out, you know, three or four days a week. The rest of the time I'm working as a builder's laborer. And it was hard. It wasn't hard to find people who wanted to talk about the Lord Jesus. It was hard to move it from that and, and from gospel into discipleship and people sticking with it. So I was learning the hard way because, you know, it was hard work. The previous church plant was still hard work, but we had 30 or 40 people and we had momentum and, you know, it, it just grew. And now we're doing the pioneer way. And the Lord's saying to me, Steve, if when I take away results of your ministry, you'll, you fall apart, you can't handle it. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> you know, that was really God's message. Steve, how much of your identity is tied up? in success in ministry. I just want to purify that a bit. You know, it's not like I was being, I was driven, okay, but it wasn't pure evil. (laughs) I must be, you know. But there was enough of it that the Lord was doing a refining work. He was working in the lives of the team. We were having opportunities every week, you know, every few days a week just to share the gospel. And we did see some people come to Christ, but it wasn't the multiplying movement I thought I had been called to, to fuel, but I was in the center of God's will. After a time, it became clear that we were to wind up the church plant. God opened some other doors where uh, I just played a role in, because I'm at the same time, I'm, well, where's all this energy go? Well, I'm, I'm going to have Australia's first national church planting comp. You know, and a guy called Bob Logan came out that I had contact with and 
you know, I just went crazy just finding any anyone around Australia who was committed to church planting and and a couple of hundred people turned up there in that was ninety two. From every state and every evangelical movement was represented in some way. And it went very well. Bob, I realized, you know, Bob's getting on that plane and it's as though the Lord says, Steve, you know, the call was for a movement across the strait. And what do you see? You know, you see the beginning of something. So that's what I want you to do. And that's when we moved out of our church plant into serving that coaching training and sort of been on that trajectory ever since. Oh, that's a small world. Bob Logan is actually a coach of mine for a season in the local church. So yeah, yeah he lives not too man. far. Yeah, he's, yeah a, no. he's, a, he's a good dude. So at some point, I'm assuming in this, you're kind of stepping back, not stepping back, maybe it's the wrong way to put it. You're, you're leaning more into a catalyzer type role. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that's kind of when the writing starts to starts to germinate in there. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually, since that first call in the garage, I was in the garage. Uh, I don't know if you call it a garage, but where you put your car. <laughs> we do now. <laughs> yeah. It's Australian Rules Podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> so really, since uh, that was 88, I'm a reflective practitioner. In fact, I'm probably more <laughs> reflected than a practitioner. I'm, I'm having a go in the field, and at the same time, I'm trying to understand what's going on. So I'm searching the scriptures, trying to understand them from a movement's perspective, and I'm reading everything I can find compulsively. So something's forming in me as we help other people reach the lost and plant churches and go on from that. And the, so eventually it coalesced into a book that nobody wanted to publish on movements. Eventually it became that first book, The Movements That Changed the World. And it was a mystery because I, I would get up and speak. I have all my notes there. I never look at them. I just talk about movements. And people really were, were, were moved by it. But then when I take the manuscript to some key publishers, they all said, no, we can't publish that, you know. And what I realized is I'd written, you know, I'd done a fuller deed in and I'd written the book like you write for an academic treatise, you know, and and you're not really committing yourself, you're giving both sides and and you're writing for the internal critic rather than write. And when I get up and speak, I've got the information there, but I, I don't look at it because I know this stuff and I'm motivating, I'm connecting with an audience. So eventually I just had to go away for six weeks and rewrite it for an audience rather than the critic in my mind. And then God blessed it. And it, it, that was the first of six books now. But it came at the right time. You know, what I put out in that first book, and it still stands as here are the characteristics of movements. These are the, because I just read everything I could find about secular movements, but also religious movements and the scriptures. Okay, here are the five recurring things. What I didn't have was what do you do Monday morning? How do you turn, you know, principles into practice? And between that and the next book, Jesus started, I both found yeah, okay, well, let's look at the practices in the New Testament, in Gospels and Acts especially. 
But then I started connecting with practitioners. So it wasn't just an ideas thing, but what are the practitioners who are seeing multiplication of disciples and churches to God's glory? What, what are they doing around the world? I began to build some bridges to people like Bill Smith and Jeff Sundell, David Garrison, and many others who can say, well, let's tell you what's happening in our field. And they had fresh stories. And so that's when I began to realize we can train principles till the cows come home and about one in 10 will get it and go do something. Or we can move from principles to practices and, and give people the simple skills to get started and you'll get a far greater impact when you train and, and in your own life. And we, immediately we started seeing fruit even in our own lives, in our local ministry. So would it be fair to say that then the latest book, Acts, is kind of a the culmination of those two things, that the philosophical, theological ideas of movement that changed the world, and then marrying that with the practical, the practitioner, and then now you you produce Acts, which, like I said, I'm, I'm on chapter four of it. It really is doing a great job of balancing that. Is that a fair fair way to look at it? Well, you can thank my a- editor at 100M, Anna Robinson, because I, I wrote the book on Acts, and I, I just wanted the Bible to speak. I thought that was enough, you know. <laughs> and Anna said, Steve, I love this stuff on Acts, but you've got to build a bridge to the audience. You've got to tell the stories, which you do in your other books. Well, that's the other books. I just want the Bible, you know. I had to talk to Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) And so we added about another four months, three or four months and 20,000 words. And I already had a lot of the case studies and the stories from around the world through the podcast, but then I had to pursue a bit more detail and check the facts. And also we needed to plug some gaps. So we did some new stuff, but it's a far better book because of that input from those, those two women. You've got to have the story. And so we, we're flowing in and out of, you know, it's mostly about acts, but then we're flowing into some stories from the field, everywhere from, you know, Afghan refugees in Greece to, you know, high-tech workers in London to Southern California to Pakistan, although we don't say it's Pakistan, but it is. And, and you're getting, you're, you're seeing these echoes of the Book of Acts throughout the world today. And that's, that's a wonderful thing, just that there's a, a dialogue going on. You know, Acts isn't a blueprint. It doesn't literally tell you what to do Monday morning, but it, there are recurring patterns of engagement that once you see them, that's all you can see in the book of Acts, that, oh, here's the pattern of engagement when you can find that whole, the whole sort of piece in, in Acts 2, you can see it as a snapshot or Acts 13 and 14, and they're the same patterns as good practitioners engage with when they're out in the field. And, yeah, so we, we built the bridge between Acts yeah. and our experience. Well, let's get into those simple patterns. Like, so, so what do you see? Because I think, you know, sometimes you can, you can read Acts, and it's, it's, it's exciting on one hand, but on the other hand, it's like, oh, oh boy. <laughs> There's a lot here, you know, like, so let's break it. What are the three things I need to do on Monday? Right. So 
in your reading of it, what are those simple patterns that you're seeing? Well, it's amazing how concrete they are. You know, a lot of the missional conversation is terribly abstract. And people still don't know what to do Monday morning. You know, somehow we'll be missional. And the word is used to hide the fog we're all in. Whereas, you know, it's not just a book of Acts, but in the Gospels, it's very clear what, you know, Jesus goes and finds people who are far from God and builds a bridge. He connects with them. You know, it's sometimes a prayer. uh, It's sometimes a teaching. But he is going to build a bridge. You know, it's a woman at the well. And right up front and early, he's going to share something of the gospel and its implications in their lives and look for a a responsive discipleship. He loves the crowds, but he's calling out disciples who will follow and obey him. And their understanding of the implications of that's going to grow. But he's out making disciples. So there's a a connect, there's a, a gospel proclamation in some form. And point leading immediately to, will you follow and obey me? Will you trust me? Will you make me your Lord? And so there's discipleship. But here's the thing. Discipleship is done in the context of community. It's never, you know, isolated individuals. Jesus, it's households. It's connecting those disciples with what. So Jesus is forming community wherever he goes. And discipleship and community formation are two sides of the one reality. And then he's going beyond that and he's multiplying local workers and workers who will go to the ends of the earth. And that's the movement piece. And you you open up the book of Acts and, and just get to Acts chapter 2. It starts with, you know, the spirit comes with power and immediately the word goes out to people who are far from God. And that word births disciples in community. And you might, for some people, the pinnacle of Acts is the spirit comes, you know, well, let's set up the video feed and we'll just soak here for till Jesus comes back, you know, or the world will come to us. For some people, the pinnacle is the word goes out. I think for Luke, the word and the spirit are given for a purpose, and that's to bring people to discipleship in community. It's disciples and churches to the glory of God. And where's this church going? You see the life of this church is another way of seeing what's discipleship look like. Well, here are the characteristics. It's all there, just in 11 verses. This first church in Jerusalem, which is many churches meeting across the city, becomes immediately a multiplying movement. So you've got the whole movement of God there in Acts 2. And then just in case we we forget it, we get to Acts 13 and 14, and the same thing with Paul and Barnabas. You know, the Spirit comes and it says, set set them apart for the work that I'm about. Well, what's that work? Well, we get to the end of 14, and it says they completed the work. The Spirit had given. So what's the work the Spirit has given God's people? Um, What is the pattern of engagement? Surprise, surprise. They go into places where there are people far from God and connect. They proclaim the gospel. They make disciples and form them into communities to the glory of God. And they raise up local workers and workers who go to the ends of the earth. That's the movement of God. 
Now, it's not just like press this button, press that button, press that button, because in the midst of that, we're going to have suffering and persecution. We're going to have times where Paul's pressing to get into this region and the Spirit blocks him, and then there's a vision and we're going over here. We're going to have shipwrecks and imprisonment, you know. So it's a full-on war, you know, that they're in. But the pattern of engagement of, of what the mission of God looks like and our part in it is very clear in the, in the Gospels and Acts. You mentioned the, I think it's it's uh, a pearl of wisdom, discipleship in community, right? But you mentioned that the, the Acts gives very clear char- characteristics of what a discipling community looks like, right? Yeah. So in your reading of it, could you share with us just a little bit about like, what does that look like? Because if you're listening to this, you're, you're probably part of some community, you know, a church gathering or something, but what is, what is the vision that Acts gives us uh, of yeah. that? Well, the Lord has inspired Luke to, to and, and the, the, the community that the Word and the Spirit creates, it, it's really, it's just terribly concrete and simple. They love one another. They worship the Lord. They pray. They share meals and celebrate Lord's Supper. They've got godly leaders. They're generous with the poor within the community are lifted up out of their poverty. You know, and and every day the gospel's going out and people are not just getting saved. Paul, uh, Luke doesn't say they're getting He says they're added to their number. And so salvation in, involves, you know, repentance, forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, and baptism. That's they they all happen in that one experience of salvation, leading immediately to community formation. And so Luke doesn't count anyone who just prays a prayer in their heart. Who does he count? He counts uh, people who've repented and believed, their sins have been forgiven, Holy Spirit, baptism added to the community. Now we're growing in these characteristics. And Luke gives us so much information about the church, even though it's only packed into 11 verses in Jerusalem. We just get echoes throughout the rest of Acts. Wherever there's church, it'll echo something from the church in Jerusalem. He's saying this is God's purpose. It's not just, oh, well, they had their model. You know, their model was love and prayer and generosity. No, this is what the people of God as disciples should look like. And they're on their way from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, every people, every place. That's the mission of God. That's the movement of God. It's clear. It's, it's not easy. It's just clear. And, but we've got all of these abstractions. We've got all of these things that can be the fruit of a movement of God, but not the center and the core. You know, just the idea that we're going to transform our city. Now, there's a that's a worthy notion, okay? But how many cities did Jesus or Paul or the early church transform? Now, Jerusalem received the judgment of God after Jesus prophesied its destruction. You know, Paul stood before Nero in chains. So you might see transformation as the overflow of a movement or you might see persecution and judgment on an empire. There are no promises about heaven on earth, okay? 
It often happens, and we see that blessing flowing to the rest of society throughout the book of Acts. But we're also seeing there's a spiritual battle here, and this is a lost world. So don't be naive about advising Nero on immigration policy. So then what's, what's missing then? So if, you know, Acts is pretty clear on, you know, what a discipling community looks like, and how it operates. Why aren't we seeing this in our churches? Like, what what are we missing in your in your estimation? Not not in a negative way. Yeah. I'm not meaning to come down on the local church. I'm just saying we're you know we're not seeing. Like, what are we missing? What are we? Well, it's this. <laughs> you know? We just open the gospels. What is full of stories of the people Jesus encountered, and most of them were strangers until he met them. So. There's, it's, it's not just, what we're doing is, you know, the spirit comes and we want to contain it in the auditory and we want to have everyone on the live feed and then drawn to the center here and we'll all soak up the Holy Spirit. Now, I've had times of soaking up the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. But the spirit comes and the word hits the streets and the movement, it's a movement. It moves, you know. Or for others of us, you know, I, I, I have no more favorite place in the world than uh, surrounded by books in a library, right? But we think the word is to be contained in the seminary or the Sunday service. And Luke only records one message to believers in the whole book of Acts, Acts uh, 20 to the Ephesian elves. Every other message is an evangelistic environment. Now, there were messages, but he's drawing our attention. You know, this the, the theme of Acts is the word keeps going out in this dynamic. It's the word of God. You know, he upholds the universe by his word. So the theme of Acts is the word continues to go out in the power of the spirit, and wherever the word goes, the fruit is disciples and churches to the glory of God. The word never takes a back, a back step. The word is always victorious. Now, the messengers are suffering and persecuted, okay? They're, they're feeling a bit poorly, just as Jesus faced opposition and persecution. But the word triumphs. So what we've got is the Spirit's not just meant for the auditorium. The word's not just meant for my study. It's meant to be going out in it's 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 God's people with the word and the spirit engaging people who are far from God. And that'll be people you know and people you've met for the very first. And I I think, you know, there's a lot of feeling in the West, we'll just let our life speak. Well, you don't want your life to contradict God's living word. But no one's ever saved by your life. <laughs> they need to hear the gospel. They need to discover it in the scriptures. Someone needs to sit down with them and let's read the word of God together and find out what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. So whenever that happens in the West, guess what? People come to know Jesus and start following him. Now I'm thinking of Don, my mate Don Waybright, and he and his team are into the prison system in Texas. And it's the largest system in the U.S., and in the U.S. there's like, I think, two to three million people. Don't quote me on that, but it's more than a million people in prison at any one time. They're getting 
the word and the spirit into the prison system. And this is how you know it's a movement. It's not Don's prison ministry where he goes and he does go and he does serve. But this movement is being spread by prisoners who started in maximum security. They've come to know Christ. They've repented. You know, we've had white Aryan nation guys baptized by African-American brothers. You know, this is going on right now. I shared that once with a pastor, and he said, yeah, but it's not happening in the suburb. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, the word is growing, breaking out in the power of the spirit in one of the darkest places in America. And you're, you don't think this is a work of God because it's not yet happening in your suburb. What do you do? But I think if there was a lot more engagement like that, a lot more realization, you know, we're, we're rightly concerned with the, both here in Australia and the US and in Europe with the needs of refugees, okay? And we ought to be meeting those and serving those people. But it's not a movement until refugees are coming to know Christ and spreading it themselves. So my mind goes to Greece, where I've met, we'll call him Jalil, from Iran. And um, he escapes Iran uh, as a young boy, as a young man, through Turkey, pays the money, gets on a rubber dinghy and gets to Greece. And a Greek family take him in, you know, very compassionately. And he finds his way to a Farsi-speaking church in Greece and he, he has a vision of the Lord Jesus and he turns and believes. Now he meets Will, who's originally from the States, but he's working around Swift, and Will teaches him these movement patterns of engagement, like how do you share the gospel? How do you connect with people far from God? Um, how do you make a disciple? How do you form new disciples into community? And Jaleel is leading people to Christ. He's making disciples. They're meeting his church in small groups. And typically, you're going through Greece on your way up and out into Europe. You're trying to get to, to Germany or England, if you can, or France or wherever. And so these guys are on the move. And Jalil, he, sometimes he's got six to eight weeks with someone, uh, sometimes a few months, but he's teaching them not a, and these are Muslim background new believers, Afghans, Iranians, even Pakistanis, and they're coming to know Christ. They're taking the gospel with them as they move throughout Europe. They're also making disciples and gathering in groups for community. And that's a movement of God, right? It's, it's in one sense you say, yeah, but there's, there's a billion Muslims in the world. I don't care. We're getting, we're getting breakthroughs today like we haven't seen in 1,400 years of this. And Jalil's just one story, but it, it just, Jalil and Will, it just shows you how simple this is um, if we're willing to move towards people who are far from God and be upfront about the gospel. Let your life speak and your words and you teach them to do with what, what you've done with them, and the beginnings of a movement occurs. You know, one of my favorite passages in Acts is chapter 8, verse, uh, what is it, verse 1, 
where it mm. says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Right. Yeah. Like, so when you actually think about it, it wasn't the apostles necessarily that spread the yeah. church. It was the disciples of the disciples. Right. Un- so unnamed ordinary believers. Exactly. Why is it so hard for practitioners to get there to that kind of second, you know what I mean? Where it's not like I'm the center of what's happening and I'm the, yeah. the catalyst, the battery, so to speak. Why, why are we having such a problem in movement circles getting to those next generations in your estimation? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons. I think some of us haven't gone the paradigm shift to uh, laying down our ministry in order to see a movement of God. And that means now we see the world through our disciples' eyes, our Timothy's eyes. So our job is not to get the work done, but to help him see his world and his Timothy's or her Timothy. Um, Sometimes that's, you know, I'm, we're all control freaks, you know, especially if you've been a pastor or a church planter, you know, let's, let's just get it done. And follow me. Okay. Well, there's a time for that. But for Jesus, that pretty quickly moves to now you go and do it and I'm not coming. Report in. So you're giving them real work to do right from the beginning. I mean, Jesus, you know, his call to the first disciples and their models for us was, Come follow me. That's the lordship, the salvation issue. And secondly, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. Now, were these guys ready for that? Was Peter ready for that? No. But how are they going to get ready? By doing it. And so their their maturity in Christ was forged in the front line. So we've just got to let go of our ministry and have movement eyes, serve others, take them out into places where they can be on the front line. I, I think there's another question, but and it is true. Why is it so hard to get to mo- not, not to find receptive people or even to see people come to Christ, but why is it there's a pattern that's hard in the West to get to multiplication of both churches and, and uh, leaders? Well, uh, the first response I'm going to give is the cheats one in a way which is look for the exceptions. You can sit back and say 99% of people, it's hard, and it is hard. I'm telling you from personal experience to get to multiplication. But who, where are the exceptions? Start learning from them, and that's what I do, and tell their stories. You know, okay, 30-plus churches in Southern California in a couple of years, 300 people. I mean, Southern California's got the population of Australia. It's like 24, 25 million or something. What's, what's 300 people? But wait a minute. There's new believers amongst them who are now leading churches and sharing the gospel. We've got an exception here. Let's, let's you know, and so I've interviewed Troy Cooper and the team over the years. You know, somewhere in London, there's, there's um, Colin and Lindsay Seal, husband and wife, and, and you know, they're showing, leading the way in how do we reach high-tech workers in, in the business district of central London who are not just being disciples in the workplace, but they're taking it home to the suburb. 
and people are coming to know Christ and groups and churches are being. There's another exception. Let's learn from them. I think there's a third file answer, and that is just remember how hard for 1,400 years reaching Muslims was. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's not easy now. People are still laying down their lives, but there's gospel fruit, there's multiplication, and there are movements of generations of disciples and churches. Well, what shifted that in the sovereignty of God? You know, the Arab Spring became the Arab Winter. War came, and Syria is still a basket case. But Syrians are turning and believing. Afghans, Iraqis, Kurds, in unprecedented ways that we a generation ago we'd say this is impossible. All that to say, at some point in history, God will shape the West. And it may be slow going, but there are exceptions we can learn from. And in the meantime, history is in God's hands, and I think God will shake the West. I, I can't prove it. I just know the patterns of Scripture. So let's be ready. Let's be, you know, learning from those exceptions. They're, they're precedents that we can, can trust. And here's my first response, you know. No one else is reaching people far from God. You know, I was, I mean, praise God, I came to the Lord in the church youth group running after a good-looking girl. But, you know, wherever people get out with the gospel and start making disciples, people are coming to know Christ who were far from him in places like prison cells and on the streets, but also in the suburbs. They are coming to know Christ. It may not be a multiplying movement yet, but everywhere where we train and people implement, they almost immediately start seeing fruit of new believers learning to follow the Lord Jesus around us. So there's four responses to what do we do in the West. Fabulous. Thank you so much. One of the things you mentioned in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, just kind of in an offhanded comment, was like the unknown, unnamed people, right? Yeah. What would you say to them? Because I think a lot of people that are going to listen to us somehow maybe have like a church vocation somewhere in their past, or they've had some sort of training that maybe the person in the pew might not have. But what would you say to the, to the person who's, you know, a construction worker like you were, who wants to see movement happen? Like what, what, what kind of encouragements would you give to them? I say get some simple best practice training and it's it's out there. There are different networks, different you know, but they've all got simple tools that are reproducing. And as quick as possible, start implementing. You know, the easiest way to open up a conversation about the Lord Jesus with someone you've known your whole life or someone you've met for the very first time. It's the same thing. How can I pray for? And you pray for them on the spot. And then you just ask, hey, are you near or far from God? Would you like to find out how you could be near? Or, hey, has anyone ever shared the gospel with you? We just draw three circles. So simple methods of engaging, but always with a plan and simple tools that will get you into discipleship and group, group and church formation. So seek those out and have a go. Ideally, not by yourself. 
you know, form a little group. We just, we're just going to learn how to do this stuff. We're going to give it a go. We get some training. We're going to give it a go and encourage. See what God does. Because remember where this whole story starts. These are not giants in the book of Acts. These are failed disciples who denied the Lord Jesus. Paul is a persecutor, throws people in jail, assaults them physically, even their deaths. Okay. So the Lord doesn't start with people who have it all together. Jesus brings the disciples back together. He grounds them in his word. He promises them the spirit. He gives them the core missionary task. Their only qualification is he's called. And even, you know, in Acts 10, Peter's clueless as, as the spirit drags him into the, the house of Cornelius. And finally he gets it. So they're not superstars. They're ordinary, even the, the apostles are ordinary people who God has transformed. Just obey that command. Come follow me and expect the Lord Jesus to teach you how to fish for people because that's, that's the movement of God. I used to do this exercise with some students of mine. I taught at a, at a seminary slash Bible college, and, and I would say, I want you to read the whole book of Acts, and I just want you to take a pen and a piece of paper. I just want to write down. I want you to just write down everything you see. What what did they do? That's, that's a simple question. What did they do? I have a class of 30 kids, and I would read it, and it's always like, oh, they prayed, and they worshiped, and you know, they they miracles and all that kind of stuff. Maybe one or two out of 30 will write down persecution mm. or suffering, yeah. right? I think it's the lost movement principle. You know? Yes. Uh, it, yeah. Now I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> let's go out and buy some persecution, right? Not. But just which but which you, they never did in Acts. They didn't go looking for it. Yeah. But you cannot give an honest reading of Acts yeah. without one of the primary principles being persecution, suffering, and the way the church responds to that, right? Yes. And I think you've done one of the most masterful jobs of just interviews I've listened to in your writing and really bringing that into a way that we can embrace. So yeah, what do you see in Acts in terms of persecution and suffering? Well, yes, not just persecution, but, you know, here I am, I, I, I get a nice Mediterranean cruise between my prison sentences. And now, now there's ships going down. Is, is that all inclusive? <laughs> yeah. Food and everything, right? It's like an Indiana Jones film because he, he crawls onto the beach. <laughs> and a few minutes later, he's got a snake latched yeah. onto his arm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Lord, give the guy a break, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is the message that the words going out in the power of the spirit, victory, right? And the messengers are suffering and there's hardship. And I had an aha moment with the death of Stephen. You know, here Stephen is. His face looks like an angel. The rocks are raining down on him. And how does he endure that? Is he stronger than me? Is he braver than me? Well, probably, but what does Luke tell us? Luke tells us he has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, the the glorious Son of Man standing, who will one day come and judge the world. And he sees the Lord Jesus. He's able to forgive his murderers. He's able to, you know, he's caught up in that, that presence of the Lord Jesus. And the same for Paul. You know, Paul and Silas, 
you know, they're in the Philippian jail worshiping God at midnight because he's with them. And so the promise, and I'm, I'm thinking for those, you know, who are suffering persecution or sometimes a spiritual battle takes the form of health issues or conflict on the team. It's, it's not the same as persecution, but it's, there's still a diabolical element to it. So how do we come through those times? Because they will come. We come through them by casting ourselves on the Lord Jesus, by expecting him to be in the prison cell with us or to be on the sinking ship you know, with us, assuring us. Uh, we may not always feel it, but it's true. And to interview practitioners and hear this, you know, to one couple I'm thinking of, you know, we hear all the victories over the last 10 years, and I am amazed. Yeah, we turn off the recording, and, and I tell them how impressed I am with what God's done through them as a couple. And they say, well, Steve, it wasn't always like, oh, <laughs> can, I, can I turn the recording back on? And we talked for another 15 minutes about, you know, the home invasion, the knife being held at the throat of the enemy, of a year and a half battle with cancer, of infidelity amongst their, one of their key leaders who ultimately was restored. But they, they spoke of the battle in order to see a multiplying movement to the glory of God. And um, that was northern Ghana, which is now spreading to other nations in uh, south, southwestern Africa. So yes, persecution and trouble, expect it, but expect God to show up. Yeah, I, I love that vision of Jesus that I had not thought about that in the life of Stephen, you know, that he sees Jesus and it's like everything's okay. <laughs> you know, everything goes from there. So thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time. Tell people a little bit about like if they want to get uh, what you know the Acts book or a different book or if they want to connect with you in some way. Can you just tell people how to how to engage with your materials? Yeah, well, there's the one stop. You can go to movements.net, movements.net, and you'll find out how to get the book. You find out we've got just like you, we've got a podcast where a lot of the stories begin that end up in the books. And you can also get messages to me through the movements.net website. And the book is Acts and the Movement of God from Jerusalem to the Ends of the Earth. Yeah. If I was back in my seminary teaching days, it would be required reading. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> that, that one of the movements that changed the world. I really think they're like, they're like bookends, you know, they're, it's just, I love it. So thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate the time. And uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and feel free to check out what we're doing at scvunderground.org. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.